This is the Thinking West Great Books Explored podcast. I'm Christian Poole. Here we dive deep into the most influential books of all time, read short essays and letters from the greatest thinkers, and discuss timeless ideas that continue to shape our culture today. If that's your thing, subscribe and support us on thinkingwest.com. This episode is one of the most famous works of philosophy in the world, Plato's Apology, also called the trial of Socrates. If you had been one of the many jurors during the trial of Socrates in Athens 399 BC, you might think that you would have voted for his freedom, knowing what you now know through the so-called lens of history. But I want to challenge you in this episode to put away our modern inclinations to sympathize with the victim and try to see things first in the eyes of those who were opposed to our protagonists given to us by Plato's Apology. Because all too often we let our sympathies for the underdog and our ability to see such events in the rear-view mirror, let us naively assume that, well, we would be with the good guys. After all, we all think of ourselves as good in some way, most of us. But in all reality, it's not so easy to see who the good guys and the bad guys are while history is unfolding. Even now, you might think you're a good guy, only for history books a century from now to write about you or your tribe as the bad guys. Now, the way the historians view events isn't by necessity correct, but that's the point. History is a subjective science in many ways. It's for us to decide what is true and not true through both scientific methods and reason. As someone with a significant background in optics, I find the phrase lens of history to be interesting because the first thing that comes to mind is the fact that there is no perfect lens. Every piece of glass or other material from which a lens is to be made will undoubtedly have some level of defects, leading to distortions in the projected image. So when I put my magnifying glass up to anything to see it in more detail, there's always some distortion in what I see, even if I can't readily detect it. After all, we see it all by the phenomenon of photons. Little discrete packages of light emanating from a source, bouncing off the object in our line of sight, and eventually hitting our eyeballs. Culminating in a massive amount of information our brains make sense of nearly instantaneously. Now sight is still, to me, one of the most amazingly complex processes. History is this way, too. We can view historical texts especially ancient ones, as the lenses through which we view history. Undoubtedly, any text or supposed expert will have deficiencies and biases that somewhat distort uh, the real historical truth. Another way I find the so-called lens of history so apt is that in looking through any lens, the peripherals often get forgotten. What is outside of our magnifying glass is blurred or ignored by our minds. Sometimes our historical readings behave that way too, where the text in front of us focuses our views so narrowly into the particular account of the historian that we forget about the competing views of history. We get sucked into one person's viewpoint, or we forget the human fallibility of the historian, or we simply forget what else is going on during the historical time period. Now let's assume Plato's telling of the trial of Socrates is the result of one faulty warped lens, 
whereby our sympathies are manipulated to favor the apology's protagonist. To turn the account on his head, let's first tell the tale of Socrates in a different way than Plato does. As we explore the psyche of his accusers, and those judges who deemed him a menace to Athens. Unfortunately, we don't have many avenues down which to fully understand the accusations against Socrates. Because most of our knowledge of the accusations come from Socrates' own mouth in his defense. This taints them even more, as we already get askew apparently not just through Plato, but also through Socrates, the defendant. Now, while Plato was apparently at the trial of Socrates, he might not have been there for the places and situations in which the accusations originated from. Perhaps in our analogy, we might think of this as looking then through two lenses of history, or potential distortions rather than just one. But first, we might try to understand something about the lens through which we look. In this case, the man, Plato. He wasn't like Socrates in many ways. He was nearly 30 years old at the time of Socrates' trial. Plato was somewhat well-to-do from a wealthy and distinguished family. And interestingly enough, his father had traced his family lineage not to some great king nor politician, but to the god, Poseidon, god of sea, storms, earthquakes, and horses. After all, you can't be god of just one thing. Though we might somewhat scoff at this, I have to imagine this kind of ancestral claim to a god was probably not uncommon at the time especially among families of repute. It brings to mind a fad which I refer to as the American Grandmother Claim, in which many American grandmothers claimed ancestry to the infamous American outlaw Jesse James. I know my own grandmother claimed such, though I didn't ever put much stock into it. There's always some secret hope within most of us that if we trace our ancestry back far enough, we'll eventually hit someone of note even if infamous. Of course, if that relation is too close in time to someone we think of as absolutely evil, say Adolf Hitler, most suddenly we find ourselves not so proud of that ancestry at all. On the other hand, push the ancestry far back enough, and the apprehension about claiming ancestry to someone who committed horrible evils tends to weaken. For example, if I were to tell everyone I was related to the monstrous Genghis Khan, nobody would care. As the pillaging by his hordes as they swept westward from Mongolia has been drained of all their emotional impact, relegating him to mere words on a page of a history book. History tends to do that the farther back you look. Coming back again to the belief in an ancestral relationship to a Greek god, it's not as crazy as it might first seem. When we realize that Christianity and Judaism both share that belief that our genesis as a human species is told in the book of Genesis, whereby mankind is created by, you guessed it, God. Now in a polytheistic religion as the Greeks had, it may be that families that claimed ancestry to a specific God implored that God more than others, perhaps expecting particular favor from them. In this way, maybe Plato's family expected Poseidon to be a patron of their family. However, being a prominent Athenian family likely meant also showing preference for the patron goddess of Athens, Athena. Being the goddess of wisdom, Athena appears to be more than worthy of veneration by Plato and Socrates. 
In fact, Athens would claim the goddess of wisdom won their veneration after competing with and defeating Poseidon, who, not one to be spurned, retaliated by flooding the entire Attic plain. You've got to love the Greek mythologies. So complex and interesting, and there's such a human element in the gods, unlike in Christianity, where we flip this idea on its head and derive some divinity in the human spirit. While Socrates gives us a somewhat barefoot hippie vibe, you have to imagine him nowadays parading around in a very colorful tie-dye t-shirt. Plato, on the contrary, had this good family upbringing and an early ambition for political life, probably starting around his early 20s, much like an ambitious college student might set his sights on a political career. But also like most college kids, Plato had no idea what the real world was going to be like particularly as his home team of Athens was losing the war against the other Greek superpower, Sparta. This Peloponnesian War, which had been raging all of Plato's young life, would mark the beginning of the end for Athens' greatest era. You see, the Peloponnesian War is special in many ways, but particularly from a military strategy standpoint. Because it was very much a sparring between the region's naval superpower and perhaps the most elite ground force of the age. It was the superpowers of Greece, butting heads. Athens would leverage its coastal allies, who together would form what's called the Delian League and use their naval superiority to raid the coast of Laconia, the nearest coast to Sparta. On the other hand, the Peloponnesian League, which included the famous Macedonia, made famous by Alexander the Great, of course, later on, would prefer to fight the Athenians and their allies on land. Most of us probably know Sparta for one thing. The stand at Thermopylae by King Leonidas and his 300-man defense against the famed million-man army of invading Persians. The influential 16th century nobleman Michel Equiem du Montaigne, one of my favorite writers, whose essays would influence many of the greatest thinkers after him, wrote of this historical moment, quote, Never could those four sister victories, the fairest the sun ever beheld, of Salamis, Platae, Macaulay, and Sicily, venture to oppose all their united glories to the single glory of the discomfiture of King Leonidas and his men at the pass of Thermopylae. End quote. This, besides perhaps the crucifixion of Jesus, might just be the most influential moment in Western history. That's a big claim, but at the least it's certainly a contender. These Spartans were born and raised for war quite literally, as Plutarch describes in a chapter on Lycurgus and the by-all-accounts alien community he built in early Sparta. And yes, if you've realized that in this podcast I'll be digressing and digressing upon digression until I realize we need to come back up for air, you're spot on. Just let us realize that we're hardly jumping into a world in our neighborhood, that these people and the society they live in is nearly as alien as if Martians had started a colony in the middle of the Peloponnese instead of some long-ago Greek tribe. And while they look like us, and maybe spoke and wrote not too differently than some peoples today, the way they viewed the world, justice, honor, government, the gods, and everything else was radically different. Yet in this tale that I aim to tell, through the great books and figures of Western civilization, the way these Spartans and Athenians saw their world would be the seeds that would eventually grow into the worldview of us today. These ideas, forms of government, and philosophies would evolve over the next 2,400 years and become our ideas, 
forms of government and philosophies. They are our cultural and intellectual ancestors. Not all of our ancestral tree, but probably very close to the trunk. Anyway, back to Sparta. Though I don't want to get ahead of myself in terms of the great books on the horizon of this podcast or show or whatever you might call it. It would be hard to talk about the Spartan world without bringing up Plutarch's description and his lives of the noble Grecians and Romans. Moreover, in my own readings, Plutarch is easily near the top of my favorites list, so his historical writings will undoubtedly constantly come up from time to time. This Spartan world was a community where boys were exercised for the making of future soldiers. Luxurious items such as raised beds were in large part banished. The carrying of lights after dining at night also banished so as to train their men to boldly walk in the dark. And long wars were discouraged, not for reasons of peace, but solely for the reason to not give away too much of their war tactics to their adversaries. But so much could be said of the Spartans, so I'll save it for when we come to other works that touch the Spartans more directly, like Plutarch's treatise on them. Athens and its allies in the Delian League would eventually lose to the Spartan-led Peloponnesian League, bringing on an onslaught of political turmoil within Athens, much to the demise of our subject Socrates. So in the battle between the elite ground force and the elite naval force, the elite ground force eventually won. After all, cities are built on land. With due credit to Sparta for refusing to enslave the Athenians at the suggestion of their allies, the Spartans instead decided to install a leadership in Athens that would better agree with them, an oligarchy of Spartan loyalists. Plato would find himself at a crossroads with the new government that could have drastic consequences on his future, and hence the future of Western philosophy. Now, Plato had relatives in leadership positions with this new pro-Spartan oligarchy, and they offered the politically ambitious Plato a tantalizing proposition. Join us in our newfound power. This is that Faustian Darth Vader moment. Join me and we'll rule the universe. It's a theme that's repeated everywhere, here in Athens, in the temptations of Jesus on the mountain with Satan, in the early U.S. history when many Americans were actually very willing to sell their freedom to the French government in return for eliminating their political enemy, one of which was actually George Washington during his first presidency. Plato, unsure of how this new government was going to go, waited to give an answer to his powerful relatives, and quite rightfully so. Their rule turned tyrannical instantly, with reportedly some 5% of Athenians dying in a mere eight-month period, and countless others stripped of their property and exiled. Socrates himself would be approached during this tyranny of the Thirty, as it was later called, to deliver an Athenian citizen into the hands of the oligarchy, which he nobly refused according to his defense in the Apology. The tides of rebellion quickly grew, and ushered in more chaos in the so-called Year of Anarchy, where the pro-democratic Thrasybulus led a violent rebellion against the oligarchy eventually succeeding in 403 B.C. So, Plato was wise to refuse the forbidden fruit offered to him by his fleetingly powerful relatives. This begs the question, where would Plato and his writings, philosophies, and impact on the Western world have ended up if he had chosen to join the oligarchy? Plato was repulsed by the violence of the oligarchy and distanced himself from their doings as democracy was established again in Athens. And it's at this time, with the 
reestablishment of democracy in Athens that brings us to the trial of Socrates, 399 BC, just a few years after the oligarchy was overthrown. Athens is still likely in shambles, their fleet virtually non-existent, all their foreign goods stripped from their hands and their walls torn down to the music of flutes, as was mandated by the Spartans following the Athenian defeat. But worst of all, their pride was crushed. Their city, which was once the pinnacle of culture in the East Mediterranean and glorious leader of the powerful Delian League, was no more than a mere puppet state of the Spartans. Athens took glory in that middle of the 5th century, but with Sparta that held the bookends. With both physical and emotional wounds still visible and the shock of losing their former glory fading into anger, the Athenian people set about looking for someone to blame. It's that human transition from denial to anger in the stages of grief, and they set their sights on Socrates. We're in some sort of outdoor theater. I don't know where in Athens, but I can only imagine it must be some place with the capacity to hold the 501 all-male jurors, the accusers, some friends of the defendant, and of course Socrates. With Socrates likely front and center as on a stage in an amphitheater, or so my imagination portrays it. Standing on the other side of the fat, pig-nosed father of philosophy is his main accuser, Miletus, and behind Miletus, two men, Anitus and Lycon. A clerk of the court keeps time by means of a water clock, a clepsydra, effectively a tower of vases where the water runs from the top vase through a hole into the bottom vase. With the trickle of water in the background, Miletus makes his case to us in the jury, not to a judge, nor through a lawyer, for there are none. We, the jury, are the sole deciders of the verdict, and if guilty, the punishment. As the accusers make their cases, our minds wrestle with the arguments, and thoughts flood our minds. Socrates has been a very vocal critic, not evil in itself, but perhaps a little irresponsible. He's been stirring up the youth and casting doubt on our gods, or so these accusers say, while Athens was in its death throes. Was this constant questioning and troublemaking of any use when Sparta was at their door and the plague and starvation ravaged the people? or when political turmoil was so freshly calmed with the overthrow of the oligarchy. In the eyes of the judges, and perhaps ourselves, if we're honest, Socrates didn't do any good for the city he claims to love so much in its darkest hour. Yes, he was an old man, unfit for direct combat, but what good is it to distract the minds of the youth who would be of use on the battlefield or restoring Athens to its rightful glory? Furthermore, this Socrates was a close friend of Alcibiades, a disgraced general who, when accused of heinous acts of debauchery on the eve of conflict with Syracuse, fled to Sparta to rally their defense against the interests of Athens. How many Athenians died unnecessarily from this madman Alcibiades, who sought by none other than Socrates? Our defeat in Sicily likely would have been victory without the treachery of Alcibiades. And now that we think of it, wasn't Socrates quite fond of Spartan law? He's praised it himself, as if to tell us he is rather more Spartan at heart than Athenian. Still more, some of Socrates' own students like Critias were leaders in the tyranny of the Thirty, and not merely by chance, as we have it heard from many that 
much of what Socrates talks about stinks of oligarchy. That's right, this unassuming Socrates is no friend of our returned democracy, but instead preaches on how good policy is not made by the many, but by the few who are knowledgeable and competent. That doesn't sound very democratic at all. As Plato would later record, Socrates has also been very critical of some of the most prominent democratic leaders. And Plato, in The Republic, which we'll get to eventually, would go on to praise the philosopher king, a quite undemocratic concept. All these thoughts may or may not have been in the minds of the jurors that day. But it's for these points that I favor political motivations for the trial rather than the somewhat vague reasons given in the Apology. And I'm not the only one who casts doubt on this matter, either. Larry Gonick writes in his cartoon History of the Universe, quote, The trial of Socrates has always seemed mysterious. The charges sound vague and unreal, because behind the stated charges was Socrates' real crime, preaching a philosophy that produced Alcibiades and Critias. But of course he could be prosecuted for that under the amnesty. So his accusers made it not believing the gods of the city, introducing new gods, and corrupting the youth. End quote. Maybe this trial was manufactured to rid Athens of a politically problematic Socrates. Historian Will Durand has a particularly fascinating chapter called The Death of Socrates in his monumental work The Life of Greece, part two in his enormous Story of Civilization series. In it, he shares his suspicions about the real cause of the animosity towards Socrates, even highlighting one interesting economic argument. Apparently, the rural farmers around Athens were a little sensitive to any criticism of their beloved gods. And if it was thought that Socrates was converting Athens away from the gods, they just might take their goods elsewhere. Perhaps because Plato is our main lens through which we see our default protagonist, Socrates wasn't as innocent as we suppose, at least on the grounds provided in the Apology. An unsettling thought, but always a healthy thought, to have when reading history. He did have ties to the Thirty and Alcibiades. He did praise the laws of an enemy city-state and taught things friendly to elite rule. Maybe Socrates was subversive to the Athenian state. Nonetheless, most of us probably don't think even the worst theory about Socrates would justify death. Moreover, even if Socrates was no more than a spreader of philosophical poison in the streets of Athens, the fame of Plato's Apology has built such a colossal aura of praise for Socrates, and hence Plato himself, that any darker speculations just can't penetrate it. We want to believe the heroic view of Socrates rather than a villainous one. In a way, some history becomes so glorified as to evolve from fact to legend, and I think everyone prefers the legend. Just as when we as kids discover Santa Claus isn't real, our first inclination is to disbelieve it solely because we want him to be real. Or we can illustrate the effect of coming to terms with reality when we find out the superstar athlete, actor, or musician isn't nearly as wonderful in person as marketing portrays them. Everyone's cooler in the movies. So too, maybe Socrates wasn't as great in real life as Plato and others have made it seem. Maybe Plato was just a little too blind to the faults of his own teacher. But then we might ask, if the depictions of the father of philosophy are wrong, or at least 
a little skewed, does it matter? If the Western world is benefited from the telling of legends instead of fact, why diminish the source of what is good? This I can't say for sure, though. I think I tend to favor truth. And for the record, I don't particularly hold this dark view of Socrates in too high a repute in my own world view. I wouldn't bet on it, but it's possible and worth a thought. At least it makes for an interesting twist to our typical views of Socrates that doesn't require too much invention. Now, for whatever reason Socrates was really on trial, everyone favors the underdog story, and I can't help cheering for the lone Socrates against his accusers in the judiciary which comprised of some 500 drafted jury members that would decide his fate, democratically. Ironically, though we praise democracy in the West for the most part, it's a democratic process that condemns Socrates in our story. And it's for this reason, I think, that Plato's view of democracy was forever darkened. Plato, finding himself not so friendly toward oligarchy nor democracy, then takes up a different journey in a sense both physical, in that he travels across the Mediterranean, and intellectually, as he takes up philosophy in lieu of losing his political aspirations. Back at the trial, Miletus is ending his accusations against Socrates, and all are anxiously waiting how the seventy-year-old man will defend himself. Find out next time on the Great Books Explored podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Great Books Explored podcast. Next episode, we'll jump into another topic just to break up the flow of the podcast so no one gets too comfortable. But in our Great Books monologues, of which this is the first, and which will probably comprise roughly every fourth episode, we'll be finishing up Plato's Apology next in part two. If you enjoy the podcast and share in its mission to reawaken the Great Books and the Great Conversation in the Digital Age, please consider supporting us at thinkingwest.com slash donate. And I'm mailing one random supporter an old yet very beautiful edition of Plutarch's Lives for anyone who simply signs up for the email list at thinkingwest.com. It will make my heart just a tad sad to see it go, but it's for a good cause. Whether you can or can't support monetarily, please share this podcast with a friend to help change the societal conversation from one about which celebrity did what to a real conversation about the higher things. And if for some odd reason you just can't share it, the best thing you can do then is at least rate the podcast. I personally thank you for taking that minute to do so. And also let me know if you have any feedback. We're, of course, a new podcast with big things ahead of us, so feel free to suggest ways to make it better. It's for you, after all. And most importantly, if you can't do anything I just said, or you just zoned out and didn't listen and just waiting for the end of the podcast well all i have to say now is simply read on